you will, turn in your text, electronic, paper, or otherwise, to Romans 12. We'll be looking again um, at the list of gifts that he gives there. Um, we'll start reading in verse 6. Uh, as you know, we uh, uh, at this point in our travels through Romans, we're looking at uh, uh, each gift sequentially. Uh, this morning we come to the gift of service. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to remind you that we did spend some time on Romans 1 through 11. And that's where we found out that it's all God's grace appropriated by faith, that God is the one who must work. He's the only one who can work in us for our salvation. And that Romans 12 and following is all the consequence of how God is working in our lives. In fact, you can think of it this way, that in, in, uh, in, in 1 through 11, uh, what we learn is that our destiny as believers in Jesus Christ is to look like Jesus. That God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, uh, the image of Christ. And uh, for that reason, then, everything that, that follows on in that uh, just talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is shaping us and remaking us and remolding us so that we would look more and more like Jesus. So as we are going through these uh, gifts, as we're looking at them, uh, we're not just looking at, wow, here's a neat thing to do, there's a neat thing to do, oh, I like that, I like this. Uh, it is rather, how are we looking more and more like Jesus? How are we glorifying the Father by looking more and more like the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? So that's why we're looking at uh, these gifts and spending some time with them. Uh, the gift that we come to this morning is that gift of service. Uh, it, the uh, Greek word for service is the word from which we get our word deacon. In the ancient world, it was a word that meant a waiter. It was someone who waited on tables, provided the food and the drink and cleared the dishes and did all those things that, that enabled the, the master and the guests to enjoy uh, their time together. So a, a servant, a deacon, is someone who provides for the needs of others. It came to be expanded to, to one who served uh, more or less in general. It, 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 it's sort of, you might think of it as a butler. You might think of it as a valet. Uh, valet is a guy who just makes sure you look good. And uh, that's what we do when we serve is we're trying to help God in, you know, Christ in us look good and, uh, and to help others um, in, in their lives so that they can look good and feel good. Uh, one thing about servants is they're always in the background. You know, you just never notice them. And, you know, watch some of the older movies when there used to be more of these kind of people around. Uh, but watch the old movies from the 30s as people drive on the tra ride on the train and they get off at the station. And, they, and, you know, it's like they effortlessly move from the train to the taxi to the hotel. They never carry luggage. Why? Because there's somebody in the station carrying that luggage. That, that was the porter and that was the person who was serving. Now, sadly, uh, they were always in the background. They were, they were never a main character. They hardly ever had speaking lines. That's why it was so neat when mystery writers started solving the mystery with, the butler did it. It's because you never thought of the butler. He was in the background. Nobody ever noticed him. He was like an invisible human being doing his job. Well, that's what a servant is. That's what we're called to be as servants. We're uh, called to be those who are in the background uh, serving. Now, uh, Jesus taught his disciples to be servants. Uh, in point of fact, uh, when he fed the 5,000, he had the disciples pass out the food. They became the wait staff. Uh, each one had a station. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can just see, you know, uh, Bartholomew is walking by and somebody says, hey, can I have another, another piece of fish? Sorry, that's not my table. 
you know, something like that. But uh, maybe it didn't happen that way. But, uh, but they were called to be waiters. They were called to be the wait staff to serve the people. Uh, in the very early church, in the book of Acts, the first people called uh, that, that we think of as deacons were those who were called to wait on the tables during the church fellowship meals. Rather than the apostles abandoning prayer and, and teaching and preaching, uh, they, they uh, selected some guys to be the waiters. They were the wait staff, and that's uh, kind of the idea of being a servant. Uh, and, and, you know, I just got to thinking about it. So some of you will go to lunch at a restaurant this afternoon. Okay, nobody's going to a restaurant this afternoon, but perhaps sometime this week you'll be in a restaurant and you'll have uh, somebody on the wait staff who will come and who will serve you at your table. And when you see them, you're going to be reminded, ah, that's what I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be that person who serves the table. Now, um, I don't know, I was going to say I don't know a lot about restaurant management. I'm going to tell you this. I don't know anything about restaurant management, so I'm making all this up. But, uh, but in point, it seems to me that if you're managing uh, a, a restaurant, you're going to put your best people forward in the room with that direct contact with your customers. You want them to have the best experience possible, so you're going to put the best people in contact with your customers. If you're running the thing well, you want them uh, to be aware of that. I, I remember um, a few weeks ago, um, a few weeks, a few months ago, we were um, uh, down in Atlanta at a, at a conference, a number of us uh, from the church uh, there for a conference, and uh, at, at a convention center, and of course the convention center had uh, people on staff there, and what I noticed was there was one lady, and all she did was she just sat in a chair at the bottom of the escalator. It was an up escalator, but she sat at the bottom of the up escalator. And as people got on the escalator, she said, good, you know, good day, good morning, how are you, good to see you, hi, how are you? It was great, you know. I, I felt like a million bucks when I walked by and said, hi, it's good to see you today. <laughs> yeah, okay. And, um, and, and that was really, really cool. I thought that was a great job to have. Well, later on in the conference, there was a speaker. Um, well, I thought he was boring, so I walked out. <laughs> Don't you dare. But, uh, uh, but anyway, while, while he was speaking, um, I, I decided I would get my steps in, and so I started walking laps around the mezzanine uh, uh, while, while that was going on. But one of the things was, I was walking by the escalator, and there was this lady, hi, how are you? That's great. I thought, man, I've got to talk to her. So I went over and said, hi, you know, it's, it's uh, really good. You know, I so appreciate how friendly you are, you know, and uh, you, you just make life better as we get on the escalator. She said, yeah, well, uh, they like me to do this. They, they say that I'm really friendly, and they want me to be the person who greets people as they get on the escalator. I said, that's marvelous. So all you do is, 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 is sit here and, and uh, just make people feel good by saying hi. She says, no. She says, my job is to save your life. What's going on here? She says, as you're getting on the elevator, as people are getting on the elevator, my job is to look at their feet. And if it's a guy and his shoelaces are untied, he's going to get that stuck in the elevator and we're going to have problems. So if somebody's getting on the elevator and their shoelaces hanging out, I just hey, good to see you. Could you tie your shoe before you get on the escalator? When we have formal events and the ladies are wearing the long gowns and, and it looks like something that's going to get stuck in the steps of the escalator, I say, you know, you may want to hang on to that as you're getting on the escalator. I didn't know that she was saving my life all this time. I just thought she was being friendly. But she was serving, and she was friendly, and she was the person who was out front who was putting a personal face on the convention, and the management knew that. 
No, and so when you go to a restaurant and, and, and your, 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 your wait person comes and, and serves your table, um, that person becomes the, 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 the image of the restaurant to you uh, in, in that regard. So like when Jesus asks us to be servants, we become the point of contact for our world with Jesus. We become the, the, the ones through whom they make a, a, an assessment. They come up with an idea. They have a judgment of who Jesus is and whether he's worth knowing and loving on the basis of how we serve and how we make, make a, a contact with that person, how we, how we serve that person. And that's why the gift of service is so important. It's really putting Jesus on display. Jesus is the one who said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. The Son of Man came to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So when you go to a restaurant the next time and you get to somebody serving your table, I want you to see that and say, you know, this is a parable. I'm, I'm participating in a parable about God's plan for my life. I need to be this kind of servant. And what kind of image am I presenting? And then here's what I want you to do. I just, you know, thought of this. Um, when it comes time to give them a tip, all right, <laughs> make it big. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what all of you are thinking. I don't tip unless the service is good. Right? You've said this. Some, somebody in here has said that. You don't have to admit it. But I don't tip unless the service is good. If it's bad service, I don't tip them. If, if it's good service, I tip them really well. But if they don't serve well, I don't give them a big tip. Okay, you're serving God. What kind of tip does he give you? You know, when you come before God's throne and he's trying to feed, he says, no, let's see, what kind of gratuity do you need? What kind of gratuity do you deserve? God deals with us in grace and in mercy. And it's, and it's ridiculous how much grace and mercy he gives to us. And our level of service is so poor, and yet God tips us so well. Our, our, our service doesn't deserve anything, and yet God gives us everything. So maybe, maybe I'll just challenge you. When the next time you're out in a restaurant and you're figuring a lot out what to tip, I just want you to figure out what you normally do and add 5%. Just add 5% to it. Just as an act of piety or something. I don't know. Just, just, just so you can say, I'm doing something here to recognize that God has called me to be a servant as well. And you know, if the service has been terrible and it's been lousy, and you don't know why, you don't know that, that, that your waiter or waitress had a, had a terrible day or they've got a problem at home, they've got a sick parent they're taking care of or they've got a child who's in the hospital. You don't know what's going on in their life. And the service has been terrible and you're going to tip ridiculously and generously. And maybe just bring a little something to that life that you didn't know about. You, you'll never know. But just tip generously. Because we are called to serve, and God has been generous to us. By the way, you know, somebody who gives you really good service and they get a really good tip, that happens all the time. It just goes in the coffer, and hey, that's fine. Somebody who's lousy at it, somebody who gives you terrible service, and they get a tremendous tip, they stop and say, what is going on here? You know, I just, I just waited on a table full of lunatics. You know, they're awful. I was, you know, all this money. But that's what God did, did for us. So let me just ask you to do that. Sometime, the next time you're at a restaurant, just tip ridiculously well. You know, at least 5% more than you normally do. 
Just as a way to say, God, I recognize you have been ridiculously generous towards me, even though my service has been lousy sometimes. That'd be a neat thing to do, okay? It's just a thought, you know, think about it. All right, now, now we're back to Romans 12. And the gift we're looking at is service. Uh, we started verse 6. These, these gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the gift. The spiritual gifts, so-called, are the ways in which the Holy Spirit manifests his ministry and work, works uh, out in our lives, conforming us to Jesus. So in verse 6, Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving... The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we could sing the hymn book through and never come close to the praise that you deserve. Father, we could lift up to you the exalted poetry of the ages and still not approach the beauty of your majesty. Father, we could come before you with, with songs and with music that is astoundingly beautiful, and yet you are more beautiful still. But we thank you that you accept our worship and that you take it in by the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to make it acceptable. Father, what a joy it is to worship you, knowing that even our worship is a, is a work of your grace in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that we would worship you now, but then we would worship you in every place and every venue of life, that whether we are united in one room or whether we are scattered, yet one in the body of Christ, that we would lift up our voices to praise you. Father, in word and deed, to put Jesus on display, that others would see him, know him, and love him. Father, that what we offer to you would be acceptable in your sight because of your grace. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you have a copy of the text in front of you because we're not going to use it right now. If you will, turn back over to Luke chapter 10. And I want for us to spend just a little bit of time in Luke 10. <clears throat> this is where you find the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you say, aha, that's why we're talking about Good Samaritan. Our topic for today is service. We're talking about how to serve and help other people. And Good Samaritan is, a, is, is just a perfect parable to talk about that. Uh, it talks about how we need to cross over barriers, break down uh, the divides, that we need to serve people where they are hurting, we extend ourselves, pay the price, take the risk, all those kinds of things, and be like the Good Samaritan. And, and there's a lot of truth to that. Um, the, the Good Samaritan is a great parable. That's why we name hospitals Good Samaritan Hospital. That's why there's a whole body of laws called Good Samaritan laws that protect people who render aid and assistance in emergency situations. So um, being a Good Samaritan is a great thing. I hope you do it. Okay, let's sing the benediction. No, um, uh, but there's something more and deeper going on, and we miss the reason and the impact of the parable of the Good Samaritan if we don't back up and see, why did Jesus tell this parable? It starts in Luke 10, and it's verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
This is the question. Jesus, what do I have to do in order to uh, fulfill the reason that I'm here in the universe in the first place? What do I have to do in order that I can attain the goal of human existence, that is eternal life in heaven in the glory of the Father, uh, just worshiping, praising him? You know, what is it I need to do to get from where I am to where God is? That's the perfect question. This isn't the only time Jesus was asked. Several times people asked Jesus this question and he just flat out gave them the answer. When Nicodemus came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom? How do I get eternal life? Jesus said, you must be born again. That's because Nicodemus came with this great heartfelt desire and need that his life would be right with God and that his life would be directed into the eternity of God's presence. And so Nicodemus came with a great heartfelt question. This lawyer came trying to test Jesus. He came with the right question, trying to get Jesus off track, prove that Jesus wasn't as much, you know, trying to negotiate Jesus down a little bit from where he was. And so this lawyer comes to him, and as a matter of testing Jesus, he says, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom, inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him in verse 26, uh, what is written in the law? How do you read it? I mean, this, this is a great tactic, by the way, when people ask a snarky question, even if it's a good one. Just look at him and say, well, what do you think? What do you think? Obviously, you think you know the answer. You're testing me to see if I have the answer. But what do you think the answer is? And the lawyer comes back to him with this answer. The lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. This is the right answer. This is the answer that every rabbi in the days of the New Testament would give. It's based on the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. You know, so uh, that, that was well known. That, that was like the creed of Judaism. So that, that's the first part of it. You're, you've got to love God with all your being. And the second part of it comes right out of Leviticus 19, where it says, you, and, and you love your neighbor. And so the rabbis knew this, the lawyer knew this, the people knew this. They were taught it in Sunday school. What is required? You know, what do we have to do? We have to love God with our whole being and we need to love our neighbor. And so that's, that's what the lawyer says. Safe answer. Love God. Love your neighbor. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and live. Now this guy's a lawyer. And he's figured out what Jesus has just done. He said, what do you already know? I know I should love God with everything I got and love my neighbor. And Jesus said, are you doing it? Is that, re- is that really what's happening in your life? Because if you do that, if you actually do that, you'll live. Because Jesus taught us that the purpose of the law is to open our eyes to our sin. The purpose of the law is so that we would know how far short of the glory we fall. The purpose of the law, as Paul says, is to bring us like a schoolmaster, to bring us to school that we would learn Jesus. The law is to bring us to Christ. And so when the, when the, the, um, the, the lawyer says, well, love God and love your neighbor, Jesus says, that's right, you do that and you'll live. That's not legalism. That's not the law sneaking in the back door. It's still grace. Jesus is saying, you do that, but you cannot do that unless some other things happen in your life. And so it's really a convicting word for the lawyer. And he realizes that, and suddenly he's trying to get out from under it. He says, Jesus, don't you know there's limits to this? He says it this way. The lawyer asks him, said, well, who is my neighbor? Huh? 
You know, let's define our terms. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer's acting like a preschooler here. You know, some of you have preschoolers in your life, either in your home or your kids' homes or something. But this is the way preschoolers are. You tell them to do something, they explain to you why they're not going to do it. Put on your shoes. Well, I'm playing. Oh, I didn't know that. Go ahead and play. I didn't, you know. All right. You know. It's, it's time to go to bed. Well, I'm going to read a book. You love your kids to read books. You tell them to read books. They know that. They're using that as a weapon against you. It's sort of like when you tell your kid on Sunday afternoon, clean your room. I don't have to work on Sunday, do I? <laughs> and the answer to that is, no, you don't have to work on Sunday. But I have to punish you on Sunday. So you know. <laughs> but the, the, it's human nature when God tells us to do something we explain to him why we're not going to do it. Or at best, we explain why we're only going to do part of it. The Jews knew they were supposed to love their neighbor. It's in the Bible. They were taught that. But they knew that neighbor is a very narrowly defined term. The person in the other country is not a neighbor. The Gentiles are not neighbors. Those Romans are not neighbors. Those people are not godly. They're not neighbors. The only neighbors I have to love are the people like me who, who, who are devoted to God like me. That's the limit of my neighbor. Isn't that right, Jesus? There are limits. And so the reason Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan is because a lawyer comes to him and said, Jesus, aren't there limits to how much I have to love my neighbor? Now understand how that neighbor thing came up. Love God, love your neighbor. Aren't there limits to love my neighbor is a way of saying, aren't there limits to the way I have to love God? Because if you love God with everything you got, the love of neighbor will follow. If you're saying, I don't want to love my neighbor, at least not some of my neighbors, after all, they run the lawnmower at 6 a.m. on Saturday. I did get past that. (laughs) But, uh, um, you know, there are limits to how much I have to love my neighbor is a way of saying, God, there's limits to how much I have to love you. To say there's limits to how much I have to be involved in obedience to this command is saying, God, there's limits to how much I have to obey you at all. So the real issue isn't trying to figure out, you know, is it nice to be helpful? Should we name hospitals Good Samaritan Hospital? The real issue here is, are there limits to loving God expressed in the limits we place on loving one another? And the limits we place on serving one another and helping one another. So Jesus tells this parable. By the way, you know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Guy goes down from Jerusalem. He gets mugged, left half dead. Two guys go by. Third guy comes along, uh, binds up his wounds, takes him to a, a, a holiday inn, uh, and you know puts him up for the night. And then when he leaves, he tells the innkeeper, he says, "Look, uh, I'll, I'll pay for his recovery. You just uh, use this money to pay for that, and I'll, I'll make up the difference when I come back." So that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this, this has suffered with all kinds of interpretations. If you ask, say, say like two hundred. A.D., something like that in the first second uh, or the second hundred years of of the church's history, if you asked one of the main teachers of of Christian uh, thought on the Bible, a man by the name of Origen, and you said, what what does the the parable of the Good Samaritan mean? He would have said, well, here's what it means. A man went down from Jerusalem, that's Adam, went down out of the Garden of Eden to Jericho, that is, into the world. And he fell among thieves who, that's that's the devil, those are the demons. And they worked him over because sin killed him. They left him half dead. That's because 
We are spiritually dead, but physically alive. We are half-dead people. And the priests came by, and that was the law. And the law couldn't save him. And the Levites came by, and that was the prophets. And the prophets couldn't save him. And then the Samaritan came by, and that's Jesus. And Jesus can save him. So he went over to the man, and he bound up his wounds and put him on the donkey. And the donkey is the, um, uh, the, the, the body of Christ, his broken body on the cross. And so we are born by the cross to a place of safety. He took him to the end, and the end is the church, and that's where we have salvation and recovery. And while he was there in the church, Jesus then gave the innkeeper all this money. The money is the gift of the Holy Spirit to take care of us. And so that's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is all about. No. I mean, that's all true, but that says more about the imagination of origin than it does about the meaning of the scripture. Let's see if we can read what it means. By the way, there are people today who do the same thing. So what is the uh, parable of Good Samaritan about? Oh, it's about just that we need to be helpful. We're going to find out. It's not just be helpful. Well, the Good Samaritan parable, it's about social justice. It is about the fact that many people have been abused by the world and they are being left half dead. And we need to fight for social justice so that the robbers and the thieves will have better home lives and better education and so they will not have the need to, th- to steal. If we just have an income redistribution, there would be no need for thieving and stealing at all. And so Christ came to show us our need for... Um, there's a word for that in theology. It's called balder dash. Okay, B-A-L-D-E-R dash. All right, that's, that's how it's spelled, balder dash. Let's see if we can read it together. Who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a lot of people say, well, what, what was his motive? Why didn't he stop? He was afraid of being defiled. He was afraid of being disqualified from the priesthood. He was, he was afraid he wouldn't serve in the temple. He was, doesn't say. He just passed by about the way you and I would pass by without a thought at all. It's just guy on the road, tough. Oh, let's see. Where's lunch? Okay. Priest came by. He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, really saw him, he had compassion. Jesus looked out at the people, and he had compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's the same word. He was moved in his innermost being, we'll put it politely. He had a gut reaction, visceral reaction. Moved with compassion because he saw the need and he saw the greatness of the, of the hurting and the woundedness. When the Samaritan came by, he saw the man and he saw the wounds and he saw the situation. He saw it differently than these other guys. And so because he was moved with compassion and he saw it differently, verse 34, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. You know, after you bind up the wounds and you've got everything ready and all the guy needs to do is heal, the only thing left to do is just sit by the bed, give him a sip of water, and when he wakes up at night in pain, you just hold his hand and say, I'm here for you. You're not alone in this. And the next day, he took out two denarii. That's, that's, uh, denarii is about one day's wage. 
um, and he gave them to the innkeeper. By the way, somebody figured out, and I don't know how they did it, but I'll just take their word for it because it's a good point. He took this money out, and he basically gave the innkeeper two months' worth of lodging. He said, this is going to be a protracted recovery. I'm going to foot the bill. And by the way, if it takes longer than I thought, I'll pay that when you get back. I've always wondered about the innkeeper, whether he, you know, okay. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think had no limits on the name or the word neighbor? Which of these three do you think was not negotiating with God the least level of service? Which one of these do you think loved God with all his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength? Which one do you think loved God with everything he had so that it was translated into loving in an extraordinary way? Which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who had the need, who fell among the thieves? Which one didn't put a limit on God? The lawyer, I think, probably with a voice so nobody else could hear because then they knew, they would know he was admitting that he had failed the test. The neighbor says, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You have heard this parable your whole life, and you know for a fact you have not gone and done likewise. You've gone and done sometimes. You've gone and done a couple of extraordinary moments. You've gone and done a few good days when you fulfilled what Jesus was talking about here. But I know for a fact because you're a human being and I'm a human being, I sort of like know what it's like, what, what it's about to be a human being. Most, uh, much of our time, if not most of our time, we're not living this out with an unfettered, unlimited love for God that translates into an unlimited service and love for others and mercy for others. So when Jesus says to the lawyer, you go and do likewise, he wasn't saying, you know, lawyer, you've got that God loves thing down pat. Here's just a little detail. Adjust that and you're going to be fine. He was saying, Laura, you're failing all across the board. You're failing at every point because you cannot separate love for God from love for your neighbor, an unlimited definition of neighbor. You cannot separate the two. There was... Uh, uh, another case where uh, somebody actually uh, did the reverse and left out love of God and put love of service ahead of that. And uh, oddly enough, it's the very next paragraph of Scripture after the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's sort of like a commentary. Now, uh, this is verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary. Now, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. And while Mary's doing that, Martha was distracted with much serving. Same word, by the way. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Ladies, you've never done that. You've never thought to yourself, Lord, tell him to get out of the lazy boy and help me put food on the table for, for Thanksgiving. Everybody's here and all he's doing is jawboning about football. So she comes in and she's doing, she's doing the service thing. She's serving, serving, serving. 
but she's not connecting to Jesus. You see that? She separated the two. She just did it differently. The, the lawyer thought he could love God without loving the neighbor. She's thinking she can serve, love Jesus, uh, you know, as a, as a person, but not love, or she can serve him, but not love in a way that would take precedence. And Jesus said to Martha, 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 you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. You see, you cannot separate the first commandment from the second. You cannot separate love of God from love of neighbor. You can't exalt one above the other. Oh, I love God, but not my neighbor. And you can't say I love my neighbor, but not God. They are vitally linked together. And the reason for that is that the gift of service is the work of the Holy Spirit in order to conform us to the image of Christ so that we can give glory to God the Father. They are vitally connected. You just cannot separate the two. And that's why I say we we so often overlook the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan because we think it's just about helping. It is about that, but it's even more. It's about our service to others, to our neighbor, is linked inextricably to our love for God. You love God, you're going to love your neighbor. You love your neighbor, you better love God in order to do it right. That's where I wanted us to get on this because, um, you know, you're going to have opportunities to, to serve. Now, now I know it, 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 it's a risky kind of thing. You know, when you, when you try to help people, it can be awfully risky. Um, oh, about 30 years ago, must have been now, um, uh, I got a phone call. I, I remember it being a very cold night and a very rainy night. The, the rain was really coming down, and um, I got a phone call, and the guy on the other end said, oh, can you put me up for the night? I, uh, 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 I'm here in, in Hughesville, and I need some place to stay. Can you put me up? And we used to do that. Uh, now we give to the men's shelter. There's various mechanics of that. But uh, and so I said, yes, I, I, uh, yeah, I'll do that. Now, Dewey Richardson, at the time, Dewey Richardson was our benevolence chairman. He used to do that. But that night, I don't know if he was on vacation or out of town. Whatever it was, he wasn't available. So I said, yeah, I'll be there. Well, at that time, I drove a Chevette. Chevette, okay. <laughs> um, if you want to know what a Chevette, it, it was a car, kind of. And if you take, you know, like, like the Rolls Royce and get down to a Cooper Mini... And then take that same distance and go to the Chevette. That's how, you know, a Chevette is from a Cooper Mini as, as far as a Cooper is from a Rolls Royce. That's how far down the list of cars a Chevette was. All right. So I'm driving this Chevette, cold, rainy night. I pull up to where the guy is. He gets in the car, soaking wet. He looks at me and says, nice car. <laughs> Just like that, nice car. So I, I figured, I better change the subject. I said, oh, well, that, that's, uh, what did you do for work when you could find work? I used to be a streetcar conductor in Australia before they kicked me out of the country. Why did they kick you out of the country? I took a knife to a man and almost killed him. And then he cackled. He didn't laugh. He cackled. In my life, I have never had spine tingles going up and down my back, except for that one time on a roller coaster. But other than that, you know, that was the only time. This guy's laughing about trying to kill a guy in Australia, and he thinks my car is nice. I want you to know I had a prayer meeting like you wouldn't believe. Lord, if you get me out of this, I'll never do this again. 
And frankly, I didn't. I always called somebody to go with me after that. <laughs> it can be risky. That's not even the worst of it. Uh, and, you know, uh, I talked about Dewey a moment ago. He was uh, our, our chairman of our, uh, of our uh, uh, benevolence. And uh, one time he's coming through Waldorf and he picks up a hitchhiker. And hitchhiker gets in the road. How far are you going? Well, I'm just heading south. Well, I can take you to, to La Plata. I'll have to drop you off there because that's where Dewey had to turn off to go home. And so he, he takes the, the, the hitchhiker and they get to La Plata. And Dewey says, well, this is where I turn off. You need to get out. Guy pulled out a pistol, pointed at him and says, you're going to go where I tell you. So Dewey just drove a couple of miles and he pulled over. He turned to the guy, pulled a New Testament out of his pocket. He said, you can shoot me if you want, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ or you can get out of the car. Well, the guy got out of the car. Okay, we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But it's a risky thing to help other people. A lot of time you get entangled in things. Uh, sometimes it costs you more than you thought. You know, it's a risky thing. It's a costly thing. Being a servant who loves God and therefore loves people, it means you're open to interruptions. Now, you, you, you'll be walking along the road on your way from Jericho to Jerusalem and back or whatever, and uh, uh, suddenly someone interrupts your life. Says, no, you, you can't finish your trip, your journey. Here's a need, and, and if you're going to meet that need, you had better stop because there's, there's an interruption here with a need here. But when you're in touch with the, the love of God and you love God like that, you, you start to view interruptions as invitations. I talked about preschoolers a moment ago. They interrupt your life like crazy. And every one of them is an invitation to enter into their life. And they'll always ask you to do it when it's inconvenient. Let's play. Let's do this. Let's do that. And that's when you've got to interrupt what you're doing so you can go and get on the floor and play G.I. Joe or tea service or whatever it is with them so you can be part of their life. It's an interruption, but it's an invitation. And some of your greatest opportunities to serve in the name of the love of God will be an interruption into your planned schedule. You see, being that kind of servant who loves God and just loves people just in a crazy kind of way, it's going to be risky, it's going to be costly, it's going to interrupt your life. But if you're going to look like Jesus, who, by the way, was walking along and suddenly a guy starts shouting, Hey, son of David, have mercy on me. Who is that? That's, that's, that's Bartimaeus. He's blind. Jesus stopped everything to talk to him. Jesus on his way to the house of the, of the ruler whose little girl was sick. And a woman touches his garment. He stops everything to talk to her. Jesus who's walking along the road and suddenly lepers who are supposed to keep their distance start saying, Hey, Jesus, have mercy on us. And he stops to talk to them. See, some of the greatest opportunities to show the love of God in Christ Jesus this coming week will come because somebody's interrupting your life. And so as we close, I just want to give you that, that as a challenge, two challenges. One is to let people interrupt you. Just look for a way to be of service. It, uh, it, it will come to you. It, it might be at your work and you've got a co-worker who, who just needs to talk about something. You've got a little bit of work to do and you decide, you know, I might do better to listen to this person and help him along the way. It might be that you need to sit down and have lunch, you know. It, it, it might be that they're snowed under with their work and you've got yours done, and so instead of playing computer games where the boss can't see, you know, you, you'll, uh, 
and maybe help him out. But look for some way in which to serve this week. And the other challenge is this. Tip generously. That person who serves you, tip them generously as a way to say thank you to God for what he's given you, even if your service is lousy. We can do that? All right. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful that you've looked beyond our abilities and beyond our shallowness, beyond our limitations and our weakness, and you've seen vessels that your Holy Spirit can use for your glory. I'm thankful, Father, that you are larger and and better than our thoughts and our limitations and the qualifications we try to put on your will. Father, I just thank you that you are a God who is great and glorious, and you have chosen us to work in us. And so I pray for the work of your Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of Christ, and this next week to make us sensitive to the needs around us, that our love for you would be translated in love for others. I ask it in Jesus' name.